Last time we spoke about the hilarious disaster that was the attack on Sydney Harbour. Both the Japanese and the Allied defenders made every possible mistake leading to one of the most bizarre and chaotic events of the Pacific War. That story involved drunk commanders, falsified reports, midget submarines going wild within Sydney Harbour, and sadly, loss of life on both sides. But today, we're going to go back in time to speak about what seems to be my favorite subject. Yes, you guessed it. General Douglas MacArthur. Oh boy, you all knew it was coming at some point. A full episode dedicated to the megalomaniac. Our good friend Dougie made some very grave mistakes during World War II. And here in this episode, we're going to cover probably his most egregious one. That being the enormous blunder of the initial defense of the Philippines. This episode is Douglas MacArthur and the Philippines Disaster. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more. So go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, if after all that you are still hungry for some more Pacific War related content, why don't you check my personal channel out, the Pacific War channel over at YouTube. And if you like pieces on individuals during the Pacific War, I have an entire series dedicated to General Rupertus. Check it out, it mean a lot to me. A lot of you are either extremely tired of me talking basically mad shit about General Douglas MacArthur, or you take delight in such things. I just want to make it absolutely clear from the offset. While I do poke fun, rightfully might I add, at the late General, he was still a man who fought a justified war. Despite everything I will undoubtedly say about him, he did some good, not all that bad. I like to ironically think of him much like Julius Caesar. You know, that irony being, everyone knows him as America's Caesar. Just like Julius Caesar, who, let's call it, blemished the stories of his victories. Because hell, most of what we know about Caesar actually comes from who else then? Caesar. Well, Mr. Dougie likewise tried to tell the public using his own publicity entourage, his own version of who he was as a commander. General Douglas MacArthur is a fascinating character for so many reasons. I won't lie, I love reading about him. The more you read about this guy, the more you are in awe. Honestly, just like Julius Caesar, well that's the way I see it. I will also point out I am quite a Caesar fanboy myself. Guilty pleasure. Now, I'm the one who wrote the corresponding YouTube episode for this one. And on top of that, I have already said a ton of stuff about Douglas MacArthur throughout this podcast series. So, I wanted to make this one more special. Perhaps a bit more like a biography. 
By stating that, I just want to let the audience know up front, if you have been following this series from day one and caught every single episode, the majority of what I'm saying in this episode has already been said at some point. Still, I made sure to really dig deeper and to try and find some more interesting information to really add to the story that is Douglas MacArthur. Also on that note, I'm going to have to acknowledge that there's a ton of information I'm using that is alleged information from scrupulous sources, but I wanted to add it just because it really adds to the drama, and I'll let you know what information that is when I say it. Stating all of that, buckle up, here is Douglas MacArthur's disastrous defense of the Philippines. Douglas MacArthur was born January the 26th of 1880 at Little Rock Barracks in Little Rock, Arkansas, to Arthur MacArthur Jr. and his wife, Mary Pinckney Hardy MacArthur. God damn, back in the day, they were really original in naming the children, eh? Arthur Jr. was the son of Scottish-born jurist and politician, guess the name, yes, Arthur MacArthur Sr. Now, Arthur Jr. was quite the war hero. He received a Medal of Honor fighting for the Union Army during the Battle of Missionary Ridge during the American Civil War. Arthur Jr., as part of the 24th Wisconsin Volunteer Infantry Regiment, saw action at Chickamauga, Chattanooga, Stones River, and during the Atlanta and Franklin campaigns. By the end of the Civil War, he was promoted Lieutenant Colonel. After the Civil War, Arthur Jr. fought in the American Indian Wars, the Spanish-American War of 1898, and the Philippine-American War of 1899-1902. He would be promoted to Major General, and when the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905 broke out, he demanded to take up a military observer position in Manchuria. After the Japanese won the war, Arthur Jr. was sent to Tokyo as a military attaché, and he would replace his aide-de-camp, Captain Paul West, with, lo and behold, his son, First Lieutenant Douglas MacArthur. Dougie would accompany his father to various Asian countries in November of 1905 before returning back home. So, honestly, from the very beginning, you kind of see this unique experience of the MacArthur family within Asia, more specifically with Japan. That makes the Pacific War seem like the plot of some kind of movie about Douglas MacArthur. If you want to hear something even crazier, the MacArthur family is distantly related to Commodore Matthew Perry, the man who opened up Japan. How can you not see some kind of Shakespearean play at work with all of this? It's insane. The man who will have the nation sign the treaty at the end of World War II is related to the guy who opened up Japan. Simply nuts. Now, Douglas MacArthur, as I said, was born in 1880, and he was the youngest of three, after Arthur III, born in 1876, and Malcolm, born in 1878. MacArthur's mom came from a prominent Norfolk, Virginia family, and two of her brothers fought for the Confederates during the Civil War, and that must have made for a hell of a family gathering. In fact, her brothers refused to attend her wedding, so I... I can assert that there was probably some bad blood there. The MacArthur family lived on a succession of army posts in the American Old West. Conditions could be pretty harsh, and unfortunately, Malcolm died of measles in 1883. 
As Douglas MacArthur recalled, his childhood in the American Old West was, as he wrote it, I learned to ride and to shoot even before I could read or write, indeed, almost before I could walk and talk. Just to give you some more flavor, that excerpt, of course, comes from us by Douglas MacArthur's 1964 biography, Reminiscence of a General of the Army, Douglas MacArthur, written by Douglas MacArthur. Yeah, he's Julius Caesar, everyone. The MacArthur's stayed in the frontier until 1889 when they moved to Washington, D.C. There, MacArthur attended the Force Public School as his dad took a post in San Antonio, Texas. In 1893, MacArthur attended the West Texas Military Academy, where he got the gold medal for scholarship and deportment. And the valedictorian, with a final year average of 97.33, Lest it ever be said, Douglas MacArthur was not a smart cookie. Dougie's dad and granddad both attempted to get him a presidential appointment to the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, but both failed. After the two rejections, MacArthur was privately tutored until he passed the examination for an appointment, getting a 93.3 on his test. From this experience, he later would remark, it was a lesson I never forgot. Preparedness is the key to success and victory. What an absolutely perfect quote to add to this episode about how MacArthur was caught completely unprepared in the Philippines. I'm making a chef kiss gesture right now with my lips. MacArthur entered West Point in June of 1899 with his mother moving there to a suite at Craney's Hotel. The hotel overlooked the academy grounds. Yes, Douglas MacArthur's mom is what we call a helicopter mom. A helicopter mom, or parent, are known as cosetting parents. A parent who pays extremely close attention to their child's experiences and problems, often intervening on their behalf. Basically, wherever Dougie went, so did she and she bullied anyone necessary to make sure her son succeeded. Think of her as the ultra-Karen. Wherever Dougie tried to enter, she would argue with the administration to make sure he got in. Any positions Dougie might achieve, she made sure he got by pushing those in charge to give it to him. She managed to do most of this by using Douglas MacArthur's father and grandfather's name. He did come from an important line of people, after all. But, in all honesty, you have to imagine, if you said no to Douglas MacArthur, you could expect his mom to show up every single day at your office door to harass you. At West Point, Douglas MacArthur had some rather famous classmates, such as Ulysses Grant III. Both him and Dougie would be hazed by Southern cadets because they were sons of famous generals. By his second year, MacArthur became a corporal, and in his third, a sergeant. His final, first-rate captain. He earned 2,424.12 merits out of a possible 2,470, which was the third highest score ever recorded. He graduated first in his class of 93 in June of 1903. One damn smart cookie to be sure. As I said previously, he spent time in Asia with his father as his aide-de-camp, and during that time, 
Enoch Crowder, aide to Arthur MacArthur Jr., remarked, Arthur MacArthur was the most flamboyant, egotistical man I'd ever seen, until I met his son. MacArthur got the opportunity to inspect military facilities in Japan at Nagasaki, Kyoto, and Kobe. He went back home, taking a position in the Engineer Battalion until he was appointed as an aide to the White House functions at personal request of President Theodore Roosevelt. His first taste of adventure was during the occupation of Veracruz in 1914 when he had this really crazy time fighting some armed men. MacArthur shot some of them, and he was shot back at, but luckily not hit. Then MacArthur was appointed Chief of Staff to the 42nd Rainbow Division of Major General Charles Menaher. The division fought in France, in the Luneville sector. MacArthur got to storm the trenches and assisted in capturing Germans, for which he was decorated with the Croix de by Major General Georges de Bazelière. He was also recommended a Silver Star by his commander, but would have to wait until 1932 to receive it. MacArthur led men during three raids in Celle du Fay, receiving a Distinguished Service Cross. The 42nd Division was eventually brought to Chalon-Champagne to fight the German Champagne Man Offensive. The Germans were repelled, and MacArthur earned a fourth Silver Star and a second Croix du Gau. General Gerald said of his performance, He was one of the finest and bravest officers I have ever served with. He came back home in 1919 to become superintendent of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, moving into the superintendent's house with his mother, of course. Eventually, MacArthur dated the multi-millionaire heiress Louise Cromwell Brooks, and they were married at her family villa in Palm Beach, Florida in 1922. Now, here is where things get quite juicy. Rumors began to circulate that General Pershing, who had once dated Louise, threatened to exile them both to the Philippines if they ever married. Later in life, General Pershing denied this allegation, stating it was, quote, all damn poppycock. It turns out Louise was already engaged, not to Pershing, but to one of her close aides, and she had to break off this engagement in order to marry MacArthur. How much more Julius Caesar do you have to get, folks? Then this kind of love affair story amongst the top military leaders of their day. In October of 1922, MacArthur, Louise, and her two children left for the Philippines. Here we get an interesting part of this entire story. MacArthur's father was very good friends with Manuel Quezon, the future president of the Philippines, and MacArthur would also become very close friends with the man. MacArthur would take command over the 23rd Infantry Brigade of the Philippine Division in the early 1920s, and he had to quell a minor mutiny that broke out amongst the Philippine scouts. In 1925, at the age of 44, MacArthur was promoted to Major General, the Army's youngest in history to that point. MacArthur would return to the United States, but eventually come back to the Philippines by 1929 to assume command of the Philippine Department. It was also the same year Louise decided to divorce him, on the grounds he failed to provide. Kind of funny, coming from a multi-millionaire. 
Perhaps Dougie was pulling some Caesar moves, like having affairs with other generals' wives or something. That would really make this story just so much better. MacArthur would return yet again to the United States in 1930 to take an appointment as the Chief of Staff of the United States Army. Dougie would come home each day to have lunch with his mother in Washington. It is also at this time we get a glimpse of something more interesting about his character. He loved to sit at his desk, wearing a Japanese kimono, cooling himself with an oriental-styled fan while smoking cigarettes out of a jeweled cigarette holder. Behind his desk was a 15-foot-high mirror. It was also at this time he began to refer to himself as MacArthur, and what I mean by that is in the third person. He also hired a public relations staff to promote his image to the American people. His entourage would portray him as a strongman that America desperately needed. He was also a strong anti-communist, and as such would be necessary to thwart the Red Menace. And of particular note, his entourage also made sure to showcase that the destiny of America was to be towards the Asia-Pacific. I thought to build up the character that is Douglas MacArthur, it might be helpful to just run through some of the more famous quotes from people who knew him. After all, MacArthur is quite an interesting person. He was incapable of accepting responsibility for his mistakes and was driven almost solely by his obsession with his public image. He went as far as to hire an entire public relations staff, as I had mentioned, to promote his image with the American public. George Marshall once visited MacArthur in the Pacific to discuss strategy, and MacArthur said to him, quote, My staff tells me so and so. To which George Marshall replied, You don't mean your staff, you mean your court. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt called MacArthur, the most dangerous man in America. Dwight D. Eisenhower, who would later become the United States President, said of MacArthur, MacArthur had an obsession that a high commander must protect his image at all costs and must never admit his wrongs. Ike was also once asked if he had ever met MacArthur, to which he replied, not only have I met him, ma'am, I studied dramatics under him for five years in Washington and four years in the Philippines. Yes, Big Arthur was interesting. He would write in grandiose, self-glorifying prose, attributing much of the United States Army's success to himself, often emphasizing the many awards he received throughout his career. Ike would also say of MacArthur, MacArthur could never see another sun, or even a moon for that matter, in the heavens, as long as he was the sun. That last quote has always been my favorite. It really captures the character of MacArthur. Now, in the 1930s, MacArthur made a real boo-boo in an event that is infamously known as the Bonus Army Controversy. You see, when the Great Depression hit the United States, Congress made cuts to the military's personnel and budget. 
Tons of bases were closed, and quite a large number of regular officers were slashed. In 1932, the, quote, Bonus Army, a group of angry veterans, marched on Washington. They called themselves the Bonus Expeditionary Force, BEF, to echo the name of the World War I American Expeditionary Forces. They set up tent encampments fully equipped with kitchens and everything necessary to mount a very, very long protest. To give a more modern example, think about Occupy Wall Street. It's kind of like that in the way it looked. There was something like 10,000 people living in the encampment. Their protest was aimed at the World War Adjusted Compensation Act of 1924, which had awarded them bonuses in the form of certificates that could not be redeemed until 1945. Thus, as you can imagine, during the Great Depression, they really wanted those bonuses now. And this is where MacArthur comes in. An Army intelligence report claimed that the BEF intended to occupy the capital permanently in order to instigate fighting as a signal for a communist uprising. The Department of Justice likewise released an investigative report in May of 1932 indicating the Communist Party had ties to the Bonus Army and were pushing the movement. President Hoover said in 1932 that a minority of the Bonus Army members were in fact communists and career criminals. MacArthur, concerned by the communist threat, ordered troops to assemble south of the White House. The 3rd Cavalry led by Major Patton, yes, that Patton crossed the Memorial Bridge with the 12th Infantry. Once everyone was in position, MacArthur stated that President Hoover wanted him to, quote, be on hand as things progress, so that he coil issue necessary instructions on the ground and take the rap if there should be any unfavorable or critical repercussions. So, basically, from that statement, what you can gauge is that Hoover wanted him and the military to be around just in case, and that if anything should happen, it would be Hoover who would take the rap. By 4.45 p.m., MacArthur had under his command the 12th Infantry Regiment and the 3rd Cavalry Regiment, supported by 5 M1917 light tanks. Apparently, the Bonus Army saw them and all assumed they were marching in their honor and cheered the troops until Patton ordered a cavalry charge at them, prompting the protesters to scream, Shame! Shame! in retaliation. Bayonets were fixed. Tear gas was launched as the military evicted the camps. The veterans fled across the Anacostia River to their largest encampment, and President Hoover ordered the military to stop the assault. But, apparently, MacArthur ignored this order. MacArthur pressed the attack, later claiming the Bonus Army was trying to overthrow the government. 55 veterans were injured, 135 were arrested. One veteran's wife miscarried, and a 12-week-old Bernard Myers died in the hospital after being caught in a tear gas attack. During this operation, Major Dwight D. Eisenhower, yeah, Ike was there too, served as MacArthur's junior aide. He stated that he strongly advised MacArthur to not make a public role of the operation, stating, quote, I told that dumb son of a bitch not to go down there. I told him it was no place for the chief of staff. 
You should have listened to Ike, Mr. Douglas. President Hoover twice sent orders to MacArthur to not cross the Anacostia Bridge during the night of the evictions. But shortly after 9 p.m., MacArthur ordered his forces to cross the bridge and evict the Bonus Army encampment there. Now, the orders were not followed, and it became a he-said-she-said kind of situation. The person who dispatched the orders, MacArthur's chief of staff, George Van Horn Mosley, claimed MacArthur simply refused them. Eisenhower, the Secretary of War for Air, Truby Davison, and Brigadier General Perry Miles all dispute this claim, saying the two orders were never delivered for an unknown reason. Regardless, the Anacostia encampment was set on fire, and no one seems to know who did that one either. The entire ordeal did not derail the careers of those in charge. It was President Hoover who ultimately bit the bullet, leading to his electoral loss in 1932 to FDR. The entire thing was very unpopular with the American public, as you could imagine, but it made MacArthur something of a hero to the right-wing elements of the Republican Party, who praised him for saving America from a communist revolution. Now, here is where things get a bit more cuckoo. In 1934, MacArthur sued two journalists, Reed Pearson and Robert Allen, for defamation against his actions against the Bonus Army, which they had called unwarranted, unnecessary, insubordinate, harsh, and brutal. MacArthur sued for $750,000 compensation for the damage to his reputation. The journalists threatened MacArthur, saying they would call Isabel Rosario Cooper as a witness in court. Isabel was a Eurasian teenager MacArthur met in the Philippines, and it is reported she became his mistress. Well, it seems MacArthur quickly settled all of this out of court, secretly paying Pearson $15,000. Quite scandalous. Now, once FDR was in the White House, oh boy, things began to get real fun for MacArthur. In a famous exchange between MacArthur and FDR, MacArthur came to the White House to complain about FDR's administration's proposal to cut the Army's budget by 51%. MacArthur allegedly stormed into his office and began screaming, When we lose the next war, and an American boy lying in the mud with an enemy bayonet through his belly and an enemy foot on his dying throat, and as he spits out his last curse, I want the name not to be MacArthur, but Roosevelt. In response to this, FDR yelled back, you must not talk that way to the President of the United States. To this, MacArthur then submitted his resignation, but FDR refused it. So MacArthur staggered out of the White House and, get this, threw up all over the front steps of the White House. You can't make this up, people. So, it was probably for the best that MacArthur returned to the Philippines in 1935 when President Manuel Quezon asked him to supervise the creation of a new Philippine army. They had been personal friends ever since MacArthur's dad had been the governor general of the Philippines over 35 years earlier. 
FDR approved of the assignment and agreed to give MacArthur the rank of field marshal with its salary and allowances on top of his major general's salary as a military advisor to the Commonwealth government of the Philippines. Wow, that is two entire salaries. Well, that certainly made him one of the highest paid military men in the world at the time. MacArthur sailed for the Philippines, taking, of course, his mother along. Unfortunately, his mother would die of illness in Manila shortly upon their arrival, on December the 3rd of 1935. Once in the Philippines, in short order, President Quezon officially conferred the title of Field Marshal onto MacArthur in a grand ceremony held at the Malacanan Palace on August of 24th of 1936. Eisenhower who was still working as an aide to MacArthur, witnessed the ceremony and said of it, It was rather fantastic, pompous, and rather ridiculous to be the field marshal of a virtually non-existent army. Eisenhower also would later learn the field marshal ceremony had not been Quezon's idea. I was surprised to learn from him that he had not initiated the idea at all. Rather, Quezon said that MacArthur himself came up with the high-sounding title. Boy, oh boy, I just keep rolling these punches at the guy, don't I? The Philippine army was formed via conscription, and MacArthur, alongside his aide Eisenhower, immediately noticed that very few training camps were already constructed, and it was only in 1937 that 20,000 trainees reported in. The equipment and weaponry were completely obsolete. Hand-me-downs from Uncle Sam. The budget for the military was quite terrible, and MacArthur's request for better equipment fell on deaf ears. A lot of hope was put into the Philippine Army's Air Corps, but its first squadron only organized in 1939. Because of the Washington Naval Treaty of 1922, Building fortifications or naval bases was banned in all the Pacific territories. The military bases of Clark and Corregidor would be banned from modernizing for about 13 years. To say MacArthur was given a terrible job is quite an understatement. By December of 1937, MacArthur married again, this time to Jean Faircloth, and he retired from the United States military. Now, while he ceased to represent the United States as a military advisor to the Philippines, this did not stop Quezon from hiring him on as an advisor in a civilian capacity. Eisenhower, however, moved on and was replaced by MacArthur's Chief of Staff, Lieutenant Colonel Richard K. Sutherland. Thank God for Eisenhower. Now here I just want to put a little tidbit of information that I found out quite recently, that MacArthur was a Freemason. While stationed in the Philippines, he was made a Mason at sight by the Grand Master of the Philippines, and eventually would be raised to the sublime degree of Master Mason on January the 14th of 1936, and then the 32nd degree of the Ancient, and accepted Scottish Rite by March of 28th of the same year. Apparently, despite his enormous job modernizing the Philippine army, he took quite a lot of time to maintain an active Masonic career. The only reason I brought this one up is because my father was, or God knows still is, a Freemason. 
To this day, I really can't get him to spill the beans on any of the elusive secrets of that society. Just thought it kind of interesting that another famous guy was a Freemason. Retirement would not be the end of Douglas MacArthur. As of July the 26th of 1941, FDR federalized the Philippine Army and recalled MacArthur to active duty in the United States Army as a major general. MacArthur was appointed commander of the United States Army forces in the Far East and promoted immediately to lieutenant general. The appointment was a no-brainer obviously based upon MacArthur's extensive and lengthy military services in the Philippines. Now, by July of 1941, the situation of the Philippines was better than that of 1936, but by no means optimal, to say the least. On July the 31st of 1941, the Philippine Department had 22,532 troops, of which half were Filipino. The main component consisted of the Philippine Division, a 10,500-man-strong formation that consisted of mostly the Philippine Scouts, under the command of Major General Jonathan M. Wainwright. Now, I know I have spoken to death about this point, but I feel it's very important to the overall story to re-examine the war plans in full. The defense of the Philippines was bound to some war plans formed way, way back when, literally around the Russo-Japanese wartime. War Plan Orange was part of a series of American military war plans for dealing with hypothetical wars. There were a ton of these. Some are actually quite hilarious, like the war plan designated Crimson, which was a plan to invade Canada. Just you try it, America. We remember 1812. There was War Plan Green, formed in the 1910s, in case Mexico got too uppity. Remember Pancho Villa? In the expedition to hunt him, it's basically like that. Or perhaps the Zimmerman telegram of World War I, when it was believed Germany might join forces with Mexico? Yeah, maybe Warplan Green had some merit to it. There was Warplan Black, a contingency plan during World War I if France was defeated by Germany and they attempted to seize the French West Indies. Can't have the Germans scooping them up now, can you, America? War Plan Yellow was to deal with China if another Boxer Rebellion-like situation were to come about. That one was pretty sinister, by the way, as it called for chemical weapons to be used on targets such as Shanghai. Yikes. There was War Plan Gold to attack France and her Caribbean colonies. Indigo to go to war with Iceland if Denmark was under German control. War Plan Purple, which was South America. War Plan White which was to deal with a domestic uprising. Guess who used that war plan to attack the Bonus Army? Yeah, MacArthur. War Plan White eventually became a plan to fight a communist insurgency. And as I've already mentioned, there was War Plan Crimson to invade Canada, which was part of a larger war plan, Red, a war against the British Empire if they wanted to finish up that old revolutionary war and take back the ungrateful colonists. Just making some jokes here, Americans. No worries. Anyways, War Plan Orange was the plan to deal with a possible war with Japan, and it was probably one of the most hashed-out war plans out of them all. It began informally in 1906, following the Russo-Japanese War, and would go through countless revisions all the way up to the attack on Pearl Harbor. Around just after the Russo-Japanese War had concluded, Warplan Orange was started by Theodore Roosevelt in case of a war with Japan. 
it would have three phases. Phase one, the United States expected the loss of its lightly defended outposts south and west of Japan, such as the Philippines, Guam, and Wake. The United States knew it could not hope to defend these outposts successfully. Thus, the war plan envisioned the concentration of the United States Navy at their home ports so these forces could be deployed to the Pacific on short notice. Phase number two would see the United States utilize its superior naval and air power to advance against Japanese-occupied islands to establish supply routes and bases. Due to the United States' production power, the United States anticipated that the Philippines could be retaken from the Japanese in approximately two to three years. Phase number three would be for the United States to utilize the islands it acquired to launch attacks on the Japanese home islands while simultaneously choking its trade with a naval blockade. So, as you can see, right from the turn of the century, America pretty much had the plan that would unfold during the Pacific War. Now, like I said, War Plan Orange was revised countless times over the years to meet new challenges as they unfolded. So after World War I, the United States disarmed itself quite a bit, while Japan had strengthened their position by taking the Marianas, the Carolines, and the Marshall Islands from Germany. In order to weaken Japan, the United States and Britain pushed the Washington Naval Treaty of 1922, which would be followed up later by the London Naval Treaty. With this treaty, they could limit the size of the great powers' navies and prohibit the construction of new fortifications or naval bases within the Pacific. Of course, the ones already built could remain, such as Singapore and the Philippines and such. To also weaken Japan, the United States harassed Britain enough to break the Anglo-Japanese Alliance Treaty. By the 1930s, the American military planners knew that the Philippines would be lost early on in a war against Japan. Thus, War Plan Orange became more and more built around the concept of establishing a defense of the Philippines that would eventually lose, but would later be liberated by the United States Pacific Navy performing an island-hopping campaign. So when we come to 1941, Warplan Orange undergoes its latest revision in April, now named Warplan Orange 3. The plan assumed the Japanese would attack without a declaration of war and with less than 48 hours warning, so it would be impossible for the United States to provide reinforcements to places like the Philippines. Thus, the Philippines' defense would be conducted entirely by the military and naval forces already positioned there. Based on an analysis of the Japanese capabilities, they believed the enemy would send an expeditionary force of around 100,000 men to capture Manila, its harbor, and occupy the islands. The garrison of the Philippines could expect little to no warning at all. The attack would most likely come during the dry season, shortly after the rice crops were harvested in December or January. The main attack would be against Luzon, and they could expect strong ground forces with heavy air and naval support. They would probably land in many places simultaneously in order to spread thin the defenders' forces, and assure at least one landing was successful. Many landings could be feints. So, under War Plan Orange 3, the mission of the Philippine garrison was to hold on to the entrance to Manila Bay and deny its use to the Japanese. There was no intention that American troops should fight anywhere 
but in central Luzon, because the entire purpose was to make a last stand in Batan. U.S. forces, constituting an initial protective force, had the main task of preventing enemy landings on Luzon. Failing in doing so, they were to defeat those forces which succeeded in landing. If, despite these attempts, the enemy was successful, the initial protective force was to engage in delaying actions, but not at the expense of the primary mission, the defense of Manila Bay. Every attempt was to be made to hold back the Japanese advance while withdrawing to the Batan Peninsula. Another key component of this strategy was to make sure the delaying actions gave enough time to move the war materials required to hold Batan for as long as possible. Batan was recognized as the key to control Manila Bay and was to be defended to the very last extremity. Estimations ranged quite a bit for how long this defense could possibly hold out, but many thought around six months, upon which the United States Pacific Fleet may have fought a decisive naval battle and won, and could perhaps reinforce the Philippines. No one in the high military believed that was actually possible, however. It was estimated that it would take the United States Pacific Fleet probably two years to fight its way across the Pacific. Thus, the entire plan assumed, basically, the Philippines would fall in around six months. Now, War Plan Orange 3 would be superseded by a larger war plan called Rainbow Plan 5. The only real change was that Rainbow Plan 5 needed to adhere to the fact the United States was most likely not going to be only at war with Japan, but would likely be at war with Germany as well. Thus, there was a two-front war. The Rainbow Plans were formed when the United States realized it was facing a possibility of war on multiple fronts against a possible coalition of enemies. Of these war plans was Rainbow Plan 5, which assumed the United States would have Britain and France as an ally and would be facing an enemy such as the Axis as we know it. One major component that came about with this was during December of 1941, when Sir Winston Churchill and President Roosevelt met at the Arcadia Conference and made a very, very large decision. If war came, the United States would adhere to the Europe First strategy. This meant that the United States would devote most of its resources to the defeat of Germany before allocating them to the threat of Japan. Keep this one in mind as Douglas MacArthur was very, very unhappy with this decision. Actually, a lot of people in the military were. Now, speaking about Douglas MacArthur, someone who rejected War Plan Orange since 1935, as you might have guessed, was, well, Douglas MacArthur. It was way, way too defeatist for him. So, as soon as he was brought out of retirement, he began a campaign to persuade Washington to revise War Plan Orange 3 and Rainbow Plan 5. He believed the Philippines could be defended in its entirety, and that it was not right to sacrifice it. He began gaslighting Washington up with claims that if they gave him more American troops and a sizable force of B-17 flying fortresses, these are heavy bombers, he could combine this with what he claimed to be 10 fully trained and fully equipped Philippine Army divisions, spanning across not just central Luzon, 
put all of the eight major islands of the archipelago to defend it. What he neglected to tell Washington was that, of course, this was all strictly on paper. The reality of 1941 was that the Philippine army lacked training, equipment, and numbers. Regardless, MacArthur's bravado inspired some enthusiasm from Washington, who did make amendments to Rainbow Plan 5 on November 19th of 1941. The amendment was to allow MacArthur to use a sizable force of B-17s with explicit orders that if war broke out with Japan, they would attack any Japanese forces and installations within striking range. The number one target was to be Formosa, which held a very large airbase and was well within striking range of the Philippines. MacArthur was instructed he could make a limited defense of the Philippine Islands, but not at the cost of War Plan Orange 3. Washington gave MacArthur a large increase in American troops, tanks, artillery, and quite the sizable air force. Now MacArthur had 31,000 American troops and 110,000 undertrained and ill-equipped Philippine Army troops. The Philippine divisions had thousands of troops, but they lacked modern weapons, adequate training, and valuable experience, something MacArthur set out to correct from the get-go, but the task of doing so was going to take quite a few months, time he simply would not receive. For the Far East Air Force, he was now given 218 aircraft, 35 B-17 flying fortresses, with many more supposed to be shipped over, 105 Curtis P-40 Warhawks, 8 North American A-27s, 26 P-35s, 18 B-18s, 12 P-26P shooters, and 11 O-52 Owls. A lot of this was basically America getting rid of a lot of old aircrafts that were just obsolete. I mean, don't get me wrong, the uh, P-40 Warhawks would come in handy, but uh, not against what the Japanese were throwing at them. To command the Air Force was Major General Louis Brereton. Now, General Homa and his 14th Army would be the ones given the task to take the Philippines. He was backed up by the 5th Army Air Force, led by Lieutenant General Obada Hideyoshi, with an armada of 183 short-range aircraft. To make up for the enormous amount of aerial superiority, MacArthur envisioned the United States Navy making the difference. For the Navy, there was a rather old Asiatic fleet commanded by Admiral Thomas Hart. He had the cruiser USS Houston as his flagship, two light cruisers, the USS Marblehead and Boys, some World War I era destroyers, and a rather large squadron of 29 submarines. Now, Admiral Hart was not responsible for the defense of the Philippines solely. He also had to defend Guam, while Wake Island was under the jurisdiction of Admiral Husband Kimmel. And I just want to point out here that Warplane Orange 3 and Rainbow Plan 5 designated the task of Admiral Hart that if war with Japan had begun, the surface fleet at his command was to retreat from the Philippines and rendezvous with Allied forces further south, or closer to the United States. Basically, the only naval force that could be around the Philippines would be submarines. In the mind of Douglas MacArthur, 
the B-17s and Hart's submarines were going to destroy any Japanese transports trying to land in the Philippines. But I think as we all know from viewing this series, especially with the Battle of Midway, high-altitude bombers can't hit an enemy warship to save their life. On top of that, the submarine force would prove to be absolutely useless for a few reasons. Reason number one, the submarine commanders were all conditioned by pre-war doctrine that held fleet submarines to be scouting vessels and extremely vulnerable to air and anti-submarine attacks. Basically, to sum up this sentence, the Americans believed that their submarines were a lot more vulnerable than they were to basically just about any types of attacks. Which is rather hilarious when you take into consideration what's going on in the Atlantic for a few years at this point. Pretty sure the wolf packs were notoriously not getting knocked out of the water. Reason number two was their Mark 14 torpedoes being faulty. Not a single Japanese warship would be sunk by the Asiatic fleet during the Philippine campaign. I do not know how many times it's been said in this series, but the early Pacific War torpedoes that the Americans were using was a crippling problem. Look at simply the Battle of Midway. Just about all the torpedo bombers that were sent after the IGN had faulty torpedoes. Even if they landed a perfect hit, most of those torpedoes would not blow up. It's a very sad reality the Americans had to face halfway through the war. But when they did fix it, my god, did it make a, it made a hell of a difference. Now, MacArthur regarded Warplan Orange 3 as defeatist and too defensive, and he preferred a more aggressive plan to defeat any enemy that attempted the conquest of the Philippines. From the date he was recalled on July the 26th, 1941, MacArthur began trying to replace Warplan Orange 3 with his own more aggressive plan, which we will just call the MacArthur Plan. During October of 1941, MacArthur persuaded Washington some of his concepts for the MacArthur Plan. He kept gaslighting them, proclaiming he would soon have 200,000 armed troops organized into 11 divisions and that the B-17s sent to him had changed the entire situation in the Pacific. I mean, to be perfectly honest from my viewpoint, the B-17s did change the situation in the Pacific, as knocking out Formosa would have definitely hindered the Japanese. It wasn't going to save the Philippines, but it was probably going to shave off, you know, a few more months' time. The MacArthur Plan, as I stated, wanted to rely upon the B-17s and Hart's submarines to hit the IGN transports inbound for Luzon. MacArthur believed the Japanese would not attack until the hot season was over, and therefore predicted an attack no earlier than April of 1942. This had a lot to do with the time of crops being grown and such. So MacArthur believed he had until April of 1942 to obtain everything he was gaslighting Washington about. However, as we all know, the war would come a-knockin' in December of 1941. Now here is where I want to get into the nitty-gritty stuff. Let's start out with how MacArthur would prepare his defenses. The Americans broke many of the Japanese codes and were intercepting a ton of signal traffic. On November the 27th, a lot of the signal traffic suggested war might be imminent 
Thus, the United States Army Chief of Staff, General George C. Marshall, sent a message to all commands, including the Philippines, stating, quote, Japanese future action, unpredictable but hostile action possible at any moment. If hostilities cannot, repeat, cannot be avoided, the United States desires that Japan commit the first overt act. This policy should not, repeat, not be construed as restricting you to a course of action that might jeopardize your defense. Should hostilities occur, you will carry out the tasks assigned in Rainbow 5 so far as they pertain to Japan. Despite the fact the Philippines was regarded as the likely primary target in the event of war with Japan, Douglas MacArthur seems to have taken no significant steps to place his command on full war alert. Turns out, he was too busy preparing to depart on an overseas liaison mission. General Brereton warned MacArthur that the B-17 bombers at Clark Field near Manila were within range of Japanese bombers from Formosa, and he proposed that the B-17s should all be moved to an airbase on the southern Philippine island of Mindanao. MacArthur agreed, but 17 of his total force of 35 B-17s were still sitting on the airstrip at Clark Field when the Japanese would attack the airbase on December the 8th of 1941. The November 27th message was not the only alarm that should have forced MacArthur to act. Most of what was going on in 1941 should have indicated to him that he needed to act. Clarence K. Larson, who was stationed at Nichols Field, just south of Manila, recalled, In late 1941, most military families were returning to the United States, which was a sure sign of possible war. At the same time, the local troops and populace were all keenly aware that war was not only possible, but could be expected at just about any time. As Larson continued, The Manila paper said that several Japanese had closed their businesses and left the Philippines. We had been on alert since December the 1st, which meant that all personnel were restricted to base. It had been reported that Japanese planes had been seen flying reconnaissance missions for two weeks over northern Luzon. The reason why both MacArthur and Brereton failed to pay proper heed to General Marshall's war warning of November the 27th is demonstrated by the fact that neither man saw any need to cancel a lavish party held in the ballroom of MacArthur's hotel on the night of December the 7th, 1941. Yes, it's as if it was fate. MacArthur threw this huge party the night before Japan attacked. On top of that, the crew of the B-17s, well, they attended the party, which lasted until 2 a.m. These were the very same pilots who had orders to move all of the aircraft to Mindanao the very next day on December the 8th. Now, for all the ground forces, MacArthur organized all of them into four tactical commands. The Northern Luzon Force under Major General Wainwright who would defend the most likely sites for an amphibious attack, the Central Plains of Luzon. Then there was the Southern Luzon Force under Brigadier General Parker, everything south of Manila and to the east. The Vizien Mindanao Force under Brigadier General Sharp, covering Panay, Cebu, Negros, and Mindanao. 
And lastly, there was a reserve force under the direct control of Douglas MacArthur. Now take note, Warplan Orange 3 stated forces should only be in central Luzon to make a fighting withdrawal into Bataan. Douglas MacArthur did not only place a ton of forces in southern Luzon, he also placed a bunch of units on all the major islands. Imagine what it would be like for just the southern Luzon force to make a fighting withdrawal to Bataan. And you can forget about all those other islands, because they're not withdrawing anywhere. So even after receiving the warning, they might be attacked at any moment, MacArthur kept his forces dispersed widely and thinly across all nine of the major Philippine islands. And in doing so, he breached one of the cardinal rules of military tactics. Again, why did he do this? Well, he honestly thought the Japanese would be unlikely to attack the Philippines before April of 1942. So he chose to stick to his own plan, despite having no realistic plan to defend all the islands if the Japanese attacked earlier. MacArthur had no intention of invoking Warplan Orange 3. He did not want to abandon Manila. He wanted to defend the nation outright from an invasion. Instead, he elected the MacArthur Plan to fight the enemy on all of the beaches. MacArthur was determined to deny the beaches to the enemy, giving up without a fight was simply against his nature. He assumed the B-17s and Hart's submarines would make up for his deficit in numbers. As author John Costello of the Pacific War 1941-1945 states, General MacArthur was so carried away by the prospect of all the bombers, tanks, and guns that General Marshall had promised to send and was in the process of sending, that on October the 1st he reported confidently he could soon have 200,000 armed men ready for combat. He also claimed that the arrival of the B-17s, although only 35 had actually arrived by early December, had changed the whole picture in the Asiatic area, thus encouraging him to call for a change from the orange plan to the much riskier strategy of a beach defense with exaggerated promises that his Filipino troops stood ready to turn back any evader at the beachhead. Admiral Thomas Hart, commander of the Asiatic fleet, who was not on the most of cordial terms with MacArthur, was pressed into supporting the change in the Philippine war plan. So, MacArthur spread his men and vital war equipment all across the Philippine Islands. Now, remember, War Plan Orange 3 called for a massive delaying action to get all of the forces to Bataan to hold out. Thus, it was imperative to have the war materials transported there as the forces delayed the Japanese. In fact, most of the vital war material was supposed to be in Bataan for the majority of this time. The major issue with what Douglas MacArthur had done was that with so many forces all over the place with the war materials, what should have taken a few days to move all of that war equipment to Bataan would now take weeks if they were lucky. And imagine how difficult this would be under heavy IGA advances. One other fallacy MacArthur had 
was the belief that Admiral Hart's fleet, combined with his B-17s, would be capable of destroying any inbound IGN warship and or transport. This was just delusional, as Rainbow Plan 5's policy was for Admiral Hart to take most of the fleet away from the Philippines if attacked. MacArthur was fully aware of this, and even if Admiral Hart kept it around, it was an incredible overestimation of his fleet's capabilities to thwart the colossal IGN forces that would be inbound for the Philippines. Within minutes of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor at 2.30am on December the 8th of 1941, that's Manila time obviously, the news was received by the Philippines HQ and MacArthur was informed by 3am. This is something that we know for sure. Because... The rest of this story gets very complicated with he said, she said stuff. As was stated in a message by George Marshall, Should hostilities occur, you will carry out the tasks assigned in revised Rainbow 5. Now, just a slight reminder of what those revisions were. They were to conduct air raids against enemy forces and installations within tactical operating radius of available bases. Clearly, this was not only a warning that war was imminent at any moment, but also an instruction to MacArthur to attack Japanese forces as soon as Japan committed the first act of aggression. I'm pretty sure Pearl Harbor is a pretty big act of aggression. Yet, MacArthur did nothing. To this day, we really don't know what exactly occurred in what is called the Far East Air Force controversy. Because just about everybody lied afterwards, and there was no official investigation made. Now again, I am basically summarizing what already has occurred in previous episodes, but please bear with me, it's important to the overall story. Raritan got news about the attack on Pearl Harbor at 4 a.m. from MacArthur's Chief of Staff, Lieutenant Colonel Richard Sutherland, who, I have to say, is a real asshole, and immediately placed the Air Force on full war alert. At 5 a.m., Raritan asked MacArthur permission to bomb Formosa, but he was denied access to MacArthur by Sutherland. Sutherland responded by insisting on a preliminary photo reconnaissance mission to find out what they were going to bomb at Formosa before doing so. At 5.30 a.m., MacArthur received a cable from Washington instructing him again to execute the Rainbow Plan 5 at once. And yet again, MacArthur did nothing. At 6.15 a.m., MacArthur was informed by Admiral Hart that Japanese carriers had bombed the American seaplane tender William B. Preston in Davao Bay on Mindanao. Now, this message is even more crucial than the attack on Pearl Harbor, I guess you could say, because many historians have speculated one of the reasons MacArthur may have done nothing was because he had the false hope that the Philippines would not be targeted by the Japanese. But even after a target in the Philippines was hit, he still did nothing. At 7.15 a.m., Brereton asked permission to bomb Formosa again, and Sutherland responded with this. MacArthur said, no, 
we must not make the first overt act. Your role is defensive for the time being. One of my sources state MacArthur's state of shock and cataleptic condition hampered him from realizing that the Japanese had already made the first overt act when they attacked Pearl Harbor. I've never read it before, but maybe somebody's also said he was too hungover, but that is a terribly stupid excuse for this entire situation. At 8 a.m., General Henry A. Arnold called Brereton from Washington, warning him not to let his planes be attacked on the ground. Brereton then began scrambling 36 P-40s and all but one of his B-17s to circle the skies aimlessly. At 9.25 a.m., Brereton was informed that Japanese bombers had attacked Tugagero Field and the United States Air Force of the Far East's Summer HQ at Bagao. At this point, things were getting really ridiculous. Brereton telephoned Sutherland again, asking permission to bomb Formosa, and Sutherland refused yet again. At 9.40 a.m., Brereton finally received a phone call from General Sutherland and MacArthur, instructing him to send a photo reconnaissance flight over Formosa and if they identified targets, a bombing raid would be approved in the goddamn afternoon. To accomplish this, Brereton ordered all of his planes to refuel, arm up, and for the air crews to eat lunch prior to their launch. It was only at 10.14 a.m. when MacArthur finally approved a bombing attack on Formosa. At 10.45 a.m., the B-17s were ordered to be armed with bombs in anticipation for a launch to be at about 2 p.m. to attack Formosa. Then, at 12.35, over eight hours after the attack on Pearl Harbor, 26 Nels and 27 Bettys bombed the shit out of Clark Field, escorted by 34 Zero Fighters, which strafed aircraft on the ground. Seven minutes later... 53 Bettys bombed Iba Field, and 51 Zero Fighters strafed aircraft on the ground. Most of Brereton's aircraft at Clark Field Air Base were sitting on the airstrips when attacked. Of the 17 B-17s on the ground at Clark Field, 12 were destroyed and 4 damaged. 34 P-40s were destroyed on the ground. Or a few in aerial combat, not that many, mind you. Half of the Far East Air Force was destroyed on the ground in the first 45 minutes of the attack, and in the following week, continued Japanese air attacks reduced Brereton's remaining aircraft to a handful of P-40s and a couple B-17s. From December the 17th to December the 20th, realizing that there was not enough fighters to protect the B-17s, MacArthur simply ordered the remaining 14 B-17s to return to Australia. One of the things that makes this just so much better is that the Japanese, for their part, did not expect to take the enemy unaware in the Philippines. They expected the enemy to be on full war alert and to find the enemy airborne meeting their armada on the way. You can pretty much guess that from the number of Zero Fighters they sent with their bombers. An incredible number. And they were late to the scene very late. They were supposed to take off at 2.30 a.m. on December the 8th. 
What ended up happening is at the airbase at Formosa, it was enveloped by this extremely thick and bizarre fog. They couldn't take off. So this whole time, they're sitting there looking at the fog and senior commanders were biting their nails thinking at any moment B-17s were going to rain hell upon the airbase. Literally, there's a lot of primary sources from the Japanese pilots who were just sitting in their cockpits looking up, thinking, when is it going to happen? It's incredible. They were literally sitting ducks for six hours. Six hours they had to wait. When the Japanese aircraft reached the Philippines, radar stations and other warning installations did not seem to pass the information to the flight commanders. At Clark Field, they were literally caught by complete surprise. The slackness of the defensive command structure was unbelievable. And you want to blame the radio technicians and the other people in these warning stations, but do remember who was in charge of the Philippines and who did not put them on full war alert at the offset, Mr. Douglas MacArthur. There was no formal, formal is a good word for this, formal investigation of what took place in regards to the failure preceding the bombings of Clark Field and Eba Field. It has been very difficult for historians to establish the exact reason for MacArthur's fatal inaction during the crucial first nine hours that elapsed in Manila following the news of the Pearl Harbor attack. When informal questions arose after the war, the chief actors in the Philippines' disaster appeared to be more concerned with protecting their own reputations and shifted the blame onto each other. MacArthur's failure to respond to the emergency certainly could have been influenced by Philippine politics. The president of the Philippines, Manuel Quezon, who was a personal friend to MacArthur for years, might have played a large role. The Philippines was already, without its consent, mind you, part of the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere, and Quezon might have naively believed that his nation was not a military or economic target for the Japanese, which is ludicrous. And why would this be the case, you might be asking? Well, Quezon had visited Tokyo in 1938, where Japanese officials told him that Japan had no aggressive intentions towards the Philippines and only wanted trade. And that has been a reason written in books, and I find that incredible, just simply incredible. It's kind of like those old war reels where it shows Hitler saying, we want no checks. Sure, Mr. Hitler. Now, also remember, the Philippines were approaching independent status at this point in history, and Quezon probably naively believed that Japan might not invade them. As stated by Douglas MacArthur in 1962 to historians Paul S. Burtness and Warren U. Ober, It was hoped that the Japanese would not attempt an invasion of the Philippines in view of its approaching independent status. Quezon was the leader of his nation, and he simply sought to avoid thousands of Filipino deaths and untold destruction. Quezon knew that if the United States sent a bombing mission against Formosa, the chances of Japan simply leaving the Philippines alone was all but lost. But you might be asking, why would MacArthur defer to Quezon? 
MacArthur commanded the United States forces, yes, but he did not necessarily command the 130,000 Filipino forces. His control over them relied on Quezon's unequivocal support. MacArthur's biographer, William Manchester, described MacArthur's mental condition at the time of the disaster as, quote, catatonic. Those who witnessed the event had described MacArthur to be gray, ill, and exhausted. It's quite interesting when you look at the big picture. When Pearl Harbor was taken by surprise, the commanders there were relieved. You know, husband Kimmel and the others. Yet, when MacArthur was arguably performing a much more disgraceful neglect of duty, he retained his. Brereton was quickly posted to duty elsewhere. MacArthur would flee the Philippines with his court and many other senior officers who might have testified to MacArthur's neglect of duty and incompetence as commander had he remained in the Philippines, or died, or was imprisoned. All I'm saying is it's awfully convenient that MacArthur kept a lot of these people who could have said something close to him during the war. Not to mention a lot of the people closest to him would receive financial rewards. And I'm talking in this way because some of this information, I'll admit, is alleged. So take it with a grain of salt, and I'll talk about it later. When the truth finally came out, somewhat after World War II was done, MacArthur had firmly already established himself as the hero of the Pacific War in the view of the public. So nothing was brought to account for his blunder for the initial defense of the Philippines. MacArthur was criticized after World War II for the blunder. It was suggested that he had failed to obey orders imposed on him by the amended Rainbow War Plan 5 and the 5.30 a.m. cable from Washington on December the 8th of 1941. In his defense, MacArthur stated, The United States desired that Japan commit the first overt act which was written in General Marshall's War Warning of November the 27th, 1941, and that, quote, My orders were explicit not to initiate hostilities against the Japanese. And this defense is horseshit, because the Japanese had also attacked targets within the Philippines, such as the William B. Preston, as I had mentioned. So what did MacArthur do? Well, he blamed the others around him. Of course he did. He blamed Major General Brereton for the loss of half of the Air Force in the Far East, and he blamed Admiral Hart for failing to do anything. Now, Brereton cannot escape criticism either. Even after MacArthur's fatal inaction during the crucial nine hours that elapsed after the news of Pearl Harbor, Brereton should have responded to the danger created by MacArthur's inaction by taking sensible precautions to avoid all of his aircraft being caught on the ground by the Japanese. Orders should have been given to maintain combat fighter patrols over the main airbases while other fighters were being refueled, dispersing some of his fighters to secondary airfields, and withdrawing all of the B-17s to Mindanao while MacArthur was paralyzed by indecision. But that didn't happen. 
Now, while the blunder of losing the entire Far East Air Force was bad and pretty much inexcusable, MacArthur followed it up with some more, even disastrous, decisions. After the Japanese had taken out the airfields, Lieutenant General Homa began landing in the north coast of Luzon. At the same time, the aerial bombing had knocked out the low-frequency radio towers, which meant the submarines could not contact another, so they had to surface at night to do so with shortwave radio. Now, by this point, MacArthur should have implemented War Plan Orange 3, the plan to withdraw all the troops and war materials into Bataan, while performing delaying actions. But of course he did not. Instead, he went forward with the MacArthur Plan, without almost any air forces relying solely on Hart's submarines who were already crippled by the radio towers being down. And MacArthur knew this. And in the meantime, Admiral Thomas C. Hart withdrew most of his surface fleet from the Philippine waters, leaving only submarines in accordance with Rainbow Plan 5, which MacArthur again fully knew was the plan. The submarines would prove to be absolutely useless at thwarting Japanese transports, much to the dismay of MacArthur, who famously asked Admiral Hart, What in the world is the matter with your submarines? As I said before, the commanders had very old ideas about the vulnerabilities of submarines. They had crippled radios, and they were using the Mark 14 torpedoes, a grossly malfunctioning weapon. They were thus unable to sink a single Japanese warship during the invasion. So, without any real air forces, and with the complete failure of the submarines, you would assume, well, the jig is up. It's time to implement War Plan Orange 3. But no. What he did was he took his best crack troops, the Philippine scouts, the 4th Marines, and the 31st Infantry, the very best troops, equipped, mind you, with good equipment, to meet the enemy at the beaches. And instead, he held them in reserve, passively, in the south. Instead, to meet the enemy head-on, he sent ill-trained Filipino units to the beaches. He gave them the order that the beaches, quote, were to be held at all costs. In effect, he kept one-third of his combat-trained regiments out of harm's way. The 4th Marine Regiment merged as the 3rd Battalion, and after several arguments between Admiral Hart and General Thutherland against such a move, was sent to the island of Corregidor as a Praetorian Guard. So, in the end, the guy goes with his own damn strategy to fight the enemy at the beaches, and then he proceeds to sandbag that entire thing by sending people who aren't able to hold the beaches, while withholding all the people that could possibly do the job. Colonel Howard was sent by MacArthur to General Sutherland for orders where he said, quote, asked that his regiment be allowed to guard the western beaches on Bataan, to which Sutherland replied that he wanted the 4th Marines to take over the beach defenses of Corregidor as soon as possible. 
According to MacArthur, the Marines had no tactical training and were not suitable for use as tactical combat units. I may have not mentioned this already, but MacArthur really hated the goddamn Navy. So a ton of these crack troops would be stuck on Corregidor for the entire campaign, doing almost nothing until Corregidor was invaded. As you would assume, the IGA of course trampled over the defenders at the beaches like Mike Tyson fighting an infant. By December the 21st, they had made major landings at the Lingayen Gulf and stormed 10 miles into the interior by the nightfall of December the 23rd. General Wainwright and his poorly trained and ill-equipped Philippine divisions did the best they could to repel the enemy, but it was pure madness. This was simply not a logical war plan. Only on December the 24th did MacArthur finally invoke War Plan Orange 3 once the enemy had landed at multiple points and were already marching into the interior of Luzon. MacArthur withdrew the Philippines government and his HQ to the heavily fortified island of Corregidor and ordered a general retreat of his troops on Luzon to the Bataan Peninsula. Most of the troops on Luzon were able to retreat, but without most of their supplies, which had to be abandoned. The U.S. and Philippine armies scattered across eight of the other large Philippine islands were abandoned along with all of their equipment outright. So despite losing his entire air force and after the Navy submarines failed to do anything, and the dramatic loss of his beach warfare, MacArthur reverted to War Plan Orange 3 far, far too late to realistically implement it. When MacArthur finally enacted War Plan Orange 3 to withdraw to Bataan, he did not allow himself enough time to gather the necessary food, water, medical supplies, and other war equipment necessary to make it stand. War Plan Orange 3 required supplies to sustain an anticipated force of 43,000 men for six months. They only managed to stockpile enough supplies to survive a 30-day siege. They would ultimately succumb to disease, starvation, forcing a very bitter surrender. As MacArthur's 90,000 troops made their two-week fighting withdrawal into Bataan, MacArthur was doing something a little shady. While IJ forces were closing in on Manila, allegedly, MacArthur telephoned the mayor of Manila, George Vargas, from his HQ on Corregidor on December the 28th, asking him to buy $35,000 worth of shares in the Lepanto Mining Company for him. Varguez allegedly executed the transaction for MacArthur on the following day. Many years later, Varguez recalled that this single share transaction during the critical stages of the invasion would make MacArthur a millionaire by the end of the war. On a rather similar note, it is also alleged that MacArthur spent his first two weeks on Corregidor pestering President Quezon for financial rewards for his distinguished service to the Philippines. 
Now, there's a few of you historians listening who might be screaming at me when I say that because it's a contentious remark to make. A lot of people would argue Quezon would give money willingly to MacArthur, but I have found quite a few sources saying that probably MacArthur was pestering him for it too. So, this is all alleged stuff, folks. Quezon was terminally ill and racked with anxiety for the fate of his people and was in no fit state of mind to resist MacArthur's demands. He also believed that his best hope for continued American support lay with MacArthur, and he responded to MacArthur's pressure for rewards by granting him the sum of $500,000 from the impoverished Philippine treasury on Krigador. And while how this money was acquired is all alleged information, the money itself did in fact get into MacArthur's pockets. This is a known fact. One account, coming from Dr. Carol Pitello, states MacArthur was trying to raise $640,000 in gold to pay for guerrilla operations in the Philippines from Quezon. Retired Lieutenant Colonel Virgil Williams of Columbus disputed this account from Dr. Carol Pitello, stating that they had seen an executive order signed by Quezon authorizing the transfer of funds to General MacArthur's New York bank account as, quote, a gesture of gratitude for the past advice of the general and his staff. The transaction made by radiograms from Corregidor to the Chase National Bank of the city of New York placed $500,000 in MacArthur's account, according to the records. But here's where it gets a bit juicier. Major General Richard Sutherland, MacArthur's chief of staff, received $75,000. Brigadier General Richard J. Marshall Jr., the deputy chief of staff, received $45,000. And Lieutenant Colonel Sidney Huff, MacArthur's personal aide, received $20,000. Hmm... Smells an awful lot like hush money to me. Oh, and another funny bit of this story, noted again by Dr. Carol Pitello. It is significant that after several statements arguing that Quezon could not safely be evacuated, MacArthur, one day after the transfer of funds, reversed his position and decided that the president's evacuation indeed could be achieved. On February the 20th, just after he received verification of the transfer, this decision was carried out, and Quezon headed south towards the unoccupied islands. So basically this remark is that MacArthur was blackmailing Quezon for money, and Quezon simply wanted to get himself and his loved ones safe to Corregidor. Then, to add just a bit more flavor to all of this, Dr. Patillo added this. On February the 25th, after transfers were completed, MacArthur returned the pesos to Lieutenant Colonel Manuel Roxas, who was in charge of the Philippine Treasury. Roxas remained in the Philippines and during the Japanese occupation collaborated with the enemy. When the Philippines were recaptured, MacArthur arrested several other collaborators but allowed Roxas to remain free. Perhaps Roxas's signature on the sheet attached to Executive Orders Number 1 was a reminder of the recipients of the $640,000 of the confidential exchange which Roxas had witnessed on Corregidor. 
Very interesting indeed. Very conspiracy-like. Starting to feel like Alex Jones or something. Now, despite these gifts of large sums of money from the Philippines Treasury to the serving officers of the United States Army being grossly improper, FDR and the Secretary of War Stimson elected to turn a blind eye to it all because they were very aware of these payments. When Quezon had escaped from the Philippines, he visited Washington and offered General D. Eisenhower $60,000 for distinguished service during Eisenhower's time in the Philippines as MacArthur's chief of staff. Eisenhower, however, politely declined the improper gift. Now, the War Plan Orange III debacle was much worse than could be imagined. Alongside 80,000 troops who made it into Bataan, were accompanied by approximately 26,000 civilians. War Plan Orange 3 anticipated supplies being needed for just 43,000 men for over six months. On the 24th of January, 1942, MacArthur responded to the outflanking of his first defensive line by ordering his troops to withdraw to a second line closer to the island of Krigador, called the Begakorian Line. By this point, he now realized that Bataan would inevitably fall to the Japanese, and he took the precaution of withdrawing food and medical supplies from the sick and starving frontline troops to ensure adequate supplies for his own HQ on Corregidor. Kind of a injury-to-insult moment right there. It is argued by countless historians that MacArthur's actions in the Philippines prior to his escape to Australia hastened the fall of the Philippines. And of course, it led to more death and brutality at the hands of the Japanese. His inability to adjust to the changing circumstances with the Japanese, this was his downfall. And with this, the debate over MacArthur's role in the Philippines is one that still continues to this very day. Some have argued that the emphasis on the operations in the Southwest Pacific, in a large part due to the forceful presence of General Douglas MacArthur, was a waste of resources. Overall, MacArthur should have known his forces were too poorly trained and ill-equipped to defend the Philippines. He failed to use his air forces as pertaining to his own MacArthur war plan. He spread his forces too thinly and placed too much of the war materials all over the Philippines. He invoked War Plan Orange III far too late and as a result, the Bataan War was crippled immensely. The troops would suffer unbelievably at the hands of starvation, disease, and the Japanese. In the end, MacArthur managed to escape the Philippines with a ton of cash in hand. He came out as a godlike hero after World War II. As the Australian journalist and military historian Gavin Long once put it, In a fragile period of the American psyche, when the general American public, still stunned by the shock of Pearl Harbor and uncertain what lay ahead in Europe, desperately needed a hero, they wholeheartedly embraced Douglas MacArthur good press copy that he was. There simply were no other choices that came close to matching his mystique, not to mention his evocative lone wolf stand, something 
that has always resonated with Americans. I would like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, if you're still hungry after all that for some more Pacific War content, why don't you give my personal channel a look at the Pacific War channel over at YouTube. It would mean a lot to me. I hope this episode painted a much clearer picture as to why the initial defense of the Philippines was such an utter disaster. And please forgive me for sprinkling so much alleged information, especially pertaining to the financial incentives MacArthur might have had. Despite all of the blundering, battling bastards of Bataan put up a legendary resistance and the Philippines would eventually be wrestled away from the Empire of the Rising Sun. And to end it all off, Douglas MacArthur did return after all.